Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, I'm joined by Army veteran Dr. Jenny Honeycutt, the Assistant Director of Research Engagement and Educational Programming at the Chess Veterans Center and Research Assistant Professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Community Health in the College of Applied Health Sciences, both at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. You and I have exchanged a few emails, but this is our first time really talking, so I'm learning about your experiences along with the listeners. And I reached out to you a few months ago after watching you on the University of Denver's Alumni Forum Celebrating Women Veterans. Since that's essentially what this podcast is about, and since you've kept yourself so busy since you've separated from the military, you've accomplished so much in research and academia, I wanted to hear more about your journey. So start off with where you're from originally and what your experiences were like that led you to serving in the military. So I originally actually am from Florida. Um, So that's where I was born and I spent my early years there. um, And then my family moved to Southwest Virginia, Northeast Tennessee area when I was in like elementary school. Um, So that's really where I grew up was in kind of rural Appalachia region. And that's where most of my family is still at now. And that's where I joined the military was was when I was 18, um, is when I started the process, actually joined when I was 19 um, into the Virginia Army National Guard, um, just a, a local unit where I was at. Um, I do not come from a military family. I have one grandfather that served in the Air Force, but that was basically the extent um, of a military family background. So me joining was definitely out of the ordinary in my family. Um, It was a bit of a shock. So it's kind of funny, actually. I was probably 17 and I was a lifeguard at the YMCA and One summer, I was working at an outdoor pool, and there was another lifeguard who had just gotten back from a deployment um, in Iraq, and he was in the National Guard, um, and he was just, like, serving as a lifeguard during the summer, and him and I became friends. And at that point, I was, you know, too young and not interested in joining, but a couple of years later, I was attending a local university, um, working on my bachelor's degree, and I was in my first semester, actually, and I was an athlete. When I say athlete, I was on the cheerleading team, <laughs> which is funny because whenever I, I joined the military and quit the cheerleading team, that had kind of this like shock effect of like, oh, I'm going to trade in my pom-poms for combat boots and an M16. <laughs> but at the time, so I was a student athlete. I was a full-time student and I was working full-time. So my parents weren't really able to help, you know, with, with the finances of school. So I was really trying to navigate, you know, living on my own school and trying to pay for all of these things and randomly ran across this friend from the past um, at at a co-acquaintance's wedding. Got to talking and I was explaining like, oh, I've got all this stuff going on. It's hard to pay for school. Um, And he had started working with a recruiter for the National Guard. So he was just like on it as soon as I started talking about needing money for school. So I trusted him. We had a friendship and he took me to a recruiter, a National Guard recruiter, and they they outlined all of the benefits I could get, particularly related to education. Um, and I was pretty immediately sold um, on the idea. For me, it was sort of at that point solely about needing access to resources. Mm-hmm. You know, I needed school paid for. I needed a way to be more self-sufficient financially on my own. 
um, and the military was offering all of those things mm-hmm. at the time. So that was kind of my my entry point into the military. I joined for the same reason. Well, I joined to get out of Alabama where my dad was stationed. So what did your family think when you went in to visit the recruiter and told them about your plans? I remember when I had already made the decision before I told my parents that I was going to join. Yeah, (laughs) it it was better that way. So they they couldn't talk me out of it. Um, I hadn't signed anything yet, but but I knew I was going to join. So I called my parents one day. I said, I'm going to come over. I need to talk with you all about something. Sat them down and they're both like, okay, you know, what's going on? This seems pretty serious. Um, and I just kind of blurted out, like, I'm joining the army. I'm going to join the national guard. And they thought I was joking. I mean, we went back and forth for probably 10 to 15 minutes before they realized I was serious. (laughs) And yeah, yeah. My mom particularly was like, no way. What are you talking about? You can't, you're a cheerleader. You're, we don't know anybody in the military. Where is this coming from? Um, my dad, on the other hand, once I started talking about all of the benefits and, you know, particularly, you know, getting school paid for, um, was much quicker to get on board and support the idea um, because he was able to kind of see all of the, the benefits and how it was going to set me up um, in a way that really nothing else, no other resources that we had access to at the time would be able to. So my dad was supportive for those reasons. And I think also to I think my dad particularly could tell I was, I think maybe a little lost. Um, I thought, you know, I was young, I was 18. I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know what I was doing. The region I grew up in is, you know, low middle class. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of um, drug addiction, particularly the opioid crisis is, is very prominent in that region. Um, we had a lot of family members, you know, that had experience with it. So there wasn't a clear script for kind of what my future looked like. And I think there was some concern and worry about, you know, lack of direction. And so I think my dad kind of didn't say it at the time, but now looking back, I think he realized that the military would give me a sense of direction and and more of a script than I would have without it. So it was helpful to have his support. My mom was completely opposite. She was against it from the beginning. (laughs) She was really concerned with the possibility of me deploying. You know, she was scared. She there was so much unknown because we didn't have any military family. So not understanding, you know, what it would mean, uh, what it would look like, how it would impact the family. So there was so much uncertainty for her that was really hard to cope with at the time. So I actually remember when I shipped for basic training, my parents drove me up to a local armory where I, you know, got in a van to, to go to MEPS. And my mom was just distraught. I mean, she wouldn't even get out of the car. She was just like crying. She was so emotional. It was also the first time that I left home for any chunk of time. So it was my first time really like stepping out of not just the nest egg, but my bubble of the community that I really grew up in. Um, So for my mom, it was the beginning of me sort of making my own way. Um, So I think she was feeling the weight of that. And then that compounded with all the uncertainty of what I, what would happen to me and, you know, what I might experience during my time in service. Because what year was this? 2008. Right. Because you joined when things were still so hot in Iraq and Afghanistan and those surrounding areas. So there was a real threat and a reason for your mom to be concerned. Do you have siblings? I do. I do. I have an older brother and a younger sister. I don't really remember a whole lot in terms of their responses to it. I, 
I think generally in my family, among like my cousins, sort of aunts and uncles, grandparents, there was almost an immense sense of pride. There was a sense of kind of like a comp, I want to use the word like badassery almost. (laughs) (laughs) Particularly my uncles that are like pretty rough around the edges, you know, we're really like, why you're going to be a soldier. Like, that's so cool. You know, we can't, we can't pick on you anymore. So there was this kind of sense of like, you know, somebody in our family is doing something really unique that nobody else in the family has done. And, you know, we're, we're proud of you. It shows a type of like strength and courage that a lot of us didn't have ourselves. So I think my brother and sister were kind of more in that boat, um, just around kind of, kind of awe in terms of like, you know, this is, you're going to like be in the United States army. You're going to go through basic training and like be in a gas chamber and just sort of, you know, all of these things that you see in like movies and whatnot. Um, I think they were kind of more in that boat of just like bewilderment of like, what is this? And it seems pretty cool and seems like it'll be good for you. So generally I think that most people in my family were supportive. The main person, again, that that was more reluctant and took her a while to get on board was definitely my mom. My grandmother in particular, me being a woman, um, there was some gender stuff that came up, I think, at the beginning when I told her I was joining. She was proud, but I very clearly remember conversations around like, well, what about when you have kids? You'll get out when you have kids, right? I'm like, well, one, I'm 18. I'm not thinking about having kids. Two, I don't know if I want to have kids. And three, I, no, I can be in the military and have kids at the same time if that's what I want. But for her generation particularly, um, and she's very religious. My entire family is very religious. So there was a sense of, as a woman, you know, your place is in the home and this is sort of a man's thing to do. So I think there was a little bit of resistance from the, the older generations of women in my family around the idea at first. Um, but through time, that's definitely changed. I think I've been able to kind of help them see it in a different way through the years. So did you know what you're getting into in terms of basic training? How was that for you? Army basic training? <laughs> yes and no. Because I had a close friendship with uh, the recruiter, the recruiter's assistant anyway, um, I I did feel prepared. And then also, too, I was part of... RST in the National Guard, the Recruitment Sustainment Program, which is basically where you can go and drill before you ship off to basic training. So you can start to get a little bit of familiarity with some customs, with, you know, how to stand, you know, just just some of the formality and, and things that you're taught in basic. I spent probably like four or five months in RST before I shipped for basic. So that prepared me a lot. That made a big difference. I knew how to take apart an M16 and put it back together before I even got to basic. Um, I had uniforms that I knew how to put on and, you know, how they were supposed to look. So that was helpful, having that that training experience in the National Guard before I actually shipped. Shipping was intimidating in so many ways. I actually have a journal that I kept through basic training that I that I refer back to in my work a lot. I think the main thing that I touched on a little bit in one of the previous questions was this was my first time really leaving home. And when I look back on my journals, the, the thing that I was fearing the most was what I was going to miss out on um, at home. And it wasn't so much, I wasn't afraid of like the physical part. I felt like I was in decent shape and I understood that they would build you up to a certain level that you weren't going to be expected to just go all out, like right when you got there. I understood that the mental component was 
going to be the most difficult part. And I knew, um, at that time anyway, I know basic has changed a lot, but I knew that once I got there, I would be cut off completely from anything outside of that environment. So phone calls, all of that was going to be taken away, um, other than being able to write letters back and forth. So I, I felt prepared in the, the way of like, okay, I know what to expect physically. I know, I think I know what to expect mentally. And I think I am decently prepared for it. But when I actually got there, I mean, it was definitely hard at first adjusting. It was intimidating and scary for sure. You know, for all the reasons it's supposed to be, but I reached a point probably maybe like a month into basic where I actually remember the day we were doing like a field training exercise. And I remember just being outside and the sun was shining. And at this point I had made friends with the people I was training with. Um, and I just remember having this sort of epiphany moment of like, this is my life right now. Like I'm here, I'm present. It's, I'm in basic training. So obviously it sucks, but it's the experience that I'm going through right now. And so I should just be present rather than worrying about and thinking about what I'm missing out on, you know, by not being at home and know how my family's feeling and how my friends at home are feeling. And I was a college student I lived with other cheerleaders at the time. So, you know, all of that was still going on and I felt very, you know, disconnected from it. And then I also remember, and I wrote about in my journal, the, the transition of adjusting from civilian life to military culture in general and being socialized and conditioned into the institution and kind of what that was like. But I was afraid of what it was going to feel like once I got back home. And I wrote about that a lot in basic training. Like, you know, they tell you that it's, you know, or they prepare you for, joining the military and being conditioned in these ways, but what's it going to be like when I go back home? How am I going to transition back to my life as it was when I'm a completely different person after this experience? Oh, that's so interesting. One, that you were able to keep a journal in basic training, uh, but that's really informed where you are right now, those early questions and, and how it's guided you to your career today. Wow. So did you know what your military job was going to be? So with the National Guard, they have slots open in certain units. So um, when you go and you sit down, they, you know, we've got these units are the ones that are nearby that you would be able to be assigned to. These are the jobs that are open in these specific units. Um, so I was given a few options. I think military police, MP um, was an option. Um, I was in a transportation battalion, so I could be a truck driver. Um, and then they had like two slots open for supply specialists. Um, and that's what they were pushing me towards. Later in my work, my research now, when I look at like gender in the military, I'm able to kind of look back and see like, oh, they were pushing support roles on me. So I was a woman. They weren't offering me any type of combat roles, which at the time, you know, women couldn't be in direct combat positions because that combat exclusion policy hadn't been lifted yet. So I was you know, joined at the time when women were not allowed to be in direct combat roles. So that, that wasn't an option. However, the jobs that were encouraged were absolutely support and administrative positions. So I ended up choosing the supply specialist um, position. And so I knew going in, you know, what my job was going to be. Even when I look back at my journals, I was writing about like, you know, I'm going to be, they put me in the safest job they could possibly find for me. You know, if I do get deployed, it's very rare that I would have to go outside the wire and, you know, I'll be, you know, in like a safe environment, just dealing with equipment. And so I, I was really sold on this idea idea of 
you know, women as protected people is, is kind of the research term for it now is this idea of like women in the military really need to be protected. Um, and I was being offered that protection through what they were encouraging me in terms of my job, but I was, you know, soaking it in. I was so open to, yeah, yeah. Like help protect me. So I was taking that role or I was just in that role in a way that aligns so clearly with those sort of gender stereotypes when I look at it now from a research perspective. So you were in for how long? It was six years of um, active guard and then two years of IRR. And did you deploy? I did not. So that's something that's unique about my my military experience and something that definitely has informed my work and where I'm at now is my unit was never activated during the time that I was in. We were skipped in a rotation. So I was in a... Um, uh, battalion headquarters unit. So it was it was a very small, we were attached to a larger um, transportation unit that we drilled with. Um, but I was, part, I mean, there were like 30 people in my unit. We were a small headquarters unit, but they had deployed, I think it was in 2003. So it was like four or five years before I got in. So the unit had been together. There was camaraderie and you know cohesion with the unit around that experience that they had had earlier. Um, but we were skipped in a rotation in the state. And so my unit never went whenever I was in. Um, so that's something that was interesting, impacted my experience of service, and definitely has impacted my sort of embodiment of veteran identity since um, and the work I do now. So you shared with me that when you separated, you had completed your master's degree in communications and were accepted into a PhD program for communication studies in Denver. What was your experience like with transitioning out of the military in Virginia to civilian life as a student in a new state and like you said, finding your identity out of a military structure. Yeah, so that's that's such a big question because it's a question that I sat with probably my entire time through my PhD program and drastically informed everything I'm doing now. So when I join, when you apply for a PhD program, at least in my discipline, you have to apply already knowing all the research that you want to do. So PhD is a research degree. So when you apply, you have to know who you want to research with, what type of research you want to do, like what your research plans are going to be. And so when I applied, none of my research had anything to do with the military. I dabbled in military research a little bit in my master's program, but it, my, my research agenda was much more about um, like sort of non-conventional romantic relationship formations. Uh, so that's what I went into my PhD program thinking I was going to study. The first couple of months when I moved were very hectic, of course, but it wasn't uncommon in the National Guard to go one or two or even three months without any type of military experience because if a drill was canceled or if you had to skip for some reason and you could go two months without seeing anybody from your unit. So it, the first couple of months felt normal, like in terms of separation from the guard, like, oh, it's, I've gone two or three months before without doing anything army related. Okay. I think when I hit month four or five is when I really started to feel things I didn't understand what was going on. I was having really bad anxiety. I was starting to feel depression. Um, I was having a hard time coping, but I had no idea. I was not in any way, shape or form contributing it to separation from service. And that's because my military experience does not mirror the sort of master narrative of what military service is. I never deployed. I never had any type of, you know, injury, visible or invisible injury. I 
you know, I didn't have the stereotypical service experience. So when I separated, I thought nothing of it at all. I thought, okay, you know, I'm just going to step out of that life into my new life and then it's done. The military's over. It's done. That ended up slapping me in the face for sure a few months later. So like I said, around month four or five, I was really struggling and I was in a research methods class and I had um, a professor at the time, he's passed away since, but he was a great mentor and we were exploring like ideas for just like a research paper for the class. And I was talking about doing some like um, rhetorical analysis on the the new 50 shades of gray movie had just come out. And I was like, I want to like analyze this movie. And he was like, pulled me aside one day and was like, what are you talking about? So you talk about the army and the military all the time. He's like, you are obviously like impacted by, by your separation. I didn't realize, I guess how much I had talked about it with my peers and, you know, just in the, in my academic, environment in general but he pulled me aside one day and was like this is the work you need to be doing like this is where your heart's at you're impacted by it whether you see it or not and I highly encourage you to consider like looking at research in the area of like veterans or transition out of service Um, and so that was a pivot point for me I mean that was a one of the biggest turning points personally and professionally. And so that's when I started sort of diving into the research and I ended up completely switching my entire research agenda that semester to focus exclusively on like military and veteran centric research, particularly as it related to identity formation, um, transition experiences, like in and out of service. Um, And then from there it, it was a process. It was a long process of probably three years out there of navigating, you know, what it meant to be a veteran, what the research was saying, how my experience didn't fit or you know, rarely would fit in the research. Um, and then what I thought needed to change about the research, which is kind of where I'm at now and what I'm doing now. Well, I had a very similar experience when I got out in 2003. The invasion was still very new. And the nonprofit organizations and post-9-11 benefits and resources that exist now weren't available back then, especially for women. So people definitely thought of a military veteran as someone who had just come back from combat or a deployment to Iraq or Afghanistan or Qatar. And because I didn't fit that description, I found myself making my service smaller, like, oh, I, I was in the Air Force or oh, I was in the medical field. So I made excuses uh, to make other people feel better about why my experiences didn't fit the bigger narrative of what is the military, what was the military, what are veterans. So as you're doing your research, you're also learning about yourself. How did this all start? How did you find the veterans that you wanted to work with? So <laughs> that was that was part of my journey of sort of coming to my own veteran identity. When I decided to switch my work and to focus on veteran stuff, I was very resistant about being a veteran myself. I did not call myself a veteran. I did not consider myself a veteran. I would not use the term to describe myself at all. I was interested in doing research on all these other veterans who were legitimate veterans, right, who had the veteran experience that I didn't have. Yes. So that was my, like, entry point. So when I decided I'm going to start doing this research, I decided I'm going to 
just like you're asking, where do I, where are the veterans at then? You know, I have to have veterans that I'm around, that I'm talking to, that I'm, you know, working with, with research. And so I started to just join, look up and join all these veteran service organizations in Denver um, and started going to the mission continues actually was probably the most impactful one that I've been in even still to date. Um, so I started joining these veteran service organizations sort of under the guise of I'm here to kind of learn about research. Yeah, I served, but I'm not a veteran, you know, it's a national guard I didn't employ. Like I'm just, you know, here to kind of learn. I do research with veterans and all these, these topics and the responses and the support I received were just life-changing in terms of, it wasn't always, there were definitely the, the, the haters that were like, ah, you're right, you didn't deploy, blah, blah, blah. But mostly, particularly in the mission continues, and I know this organization more intimately, and I know that they are so intentional, are so intentional about inclusivity in terms of who can join and service status and veteran identity. And so it was the perfect one for me really to find at that point, because they were like, what are you talking? Of course you're a veteran, like you served. And they were just so validating in a way that I really needed at the time. So slowly, probably over about a year time, being part of these organizations, that's when I started to turn the questions back on myself. What did my service mean? How did it change me? What does it mean for my life now? You know, how am I different now than when I was when I joined and, you know, before? And after I started turning the questions back on myself is when I started to feel empowered. That's when I started to really embody like, you know what, this is bullshit. Like all of these, these narratives and all of these concepts and ideas of what a veteran is, nobody fits in that narrative. And I actually can speak a bit more about my research in terms of, I'm developing an entire theory just about that. I have a book coming out this summer about it. Um, so I'll, I'll talk more about that. But, you know, at the time when I was asking those questions, when I started turning it back inward, we didn't have um, a, mili- a veteran community on campus. So we did not have an active like student veteran association. We didn't have any faculty on campus that did veteran research. And so once I realized that, once I kind of got to the place in the veteran service organizations of like, yeah, you know what? I am a veteran. I can claim this identity. I can include myself in this work. And so I need on my campus... I need like a place for this. I need a community. I need my people on campus. So I built it. I built our student veteran association on campus. I, you know, found us. Luckily, the university just hired probably my second year there. They hired a veteran service representative on campus to like help people with their benefits. Um, His name is Damon Vine and he still is one of my like biggest mentors. I was like, I am a veteran and we need a veteran community here and you're here now. So you're going to be the the mentor and you're going to like help us build this. So it was me. And then there was another student named Josh um, who had a background in special forces, which also brought up, you know, all this other stuff. He was the person I was working with. We were developing it together. Um, Right. So there's this dissonance of like, well, he's definitely a real veteran. Right. Right. (laughs) But again, him and Damon both were just so like, no, Jenny, like you step up, you're going to be the president of the organization. You are a veteran, you know, we're going to put you in these leadership roles. And we, Josh, Damon and I, you know, built the the community there. So to the point of ended up getting a veteran's lounge on campus later during my time there, um, 
actually the psychology school on campus developed a military psychology program that I was very involved in sort of building and ended up working in before I left. So built the community myself, really, with, with some support. And it's still flourishing now. It's something I'm, I'm really proud of. And one of the things that sort of legacy, I think, that I left there at DU it, it was a process kind of to get, to get back to your original question of how did I, you know, get into the community? It was first under that guise. And then once I was in the community, the validation and affirmation was so pivotal for myself. And then once I had that, I felt empowered enough to build, you know, the community around me. You became your own case study. <laughs> I love that. I mean, look at, Look at the evolution of your work once it was pointed out to you by a mentor. Uh, how many veterans have you connected with in your research? Probably hundreds, but where I'm at now, I've definitely had thousands of people I think we have connected with between me and all of the researchers that I work with now. The influence, I mean, the position I'm at, I can talk more about my work here at Illinois Um the influence I think that my position has now on like the local and state level of research that's happening with veterans, but there is some national impact. And my goal, you know, is eventually to reach a point that they're, the work we're, we're doing out of the Chess Center here in Illinois is sort of nationally impacting and influencing the trajectory of research with veterans across the country. So let's talk about that. You graduate uh, and you leave Colorado and go to Illinois. Yeah. And was this a position that you were seeking out or were you, through your research, did you connect with people? How did that happen? <laughs> Actually, it was super um, serendipitous. In my program, um, they offered us, like you could compete for a fellowship to have for your fourth year, your dissertation year. The fellowship wasn't that much money and it was highly competitive. At the time when I was going up for, it's time for me to apply for the fellowship for the fourth year is when the military psychology program in the graduate school of professional psychology on campus was was being built. I worked with the the donor family who donated the money to create that whole program, kind of like a consultant a little bit. So I would help them um, decide, you know, what the marketing was supposed to look like. I helped write the job descriptions for the faculty and clinical director. So I was kind of helping to build in the back ends. And then right at the time when it came, it came time for me to apply for my fellowship was when this military psychology program stood up and became operational. So they were hiring and they needed an outreach specialist. And so perfectly, I was like, mm, I can apply for the fellowship or I can apply uh, so if you get the fellowship, you have to sign no work contracts. So you're not allowed to have a job. Um, so I was like, mm, I can work in the military psychology program and work full time while I'm trying to do my dissertation, which would be a lot of work. But, you know, I felt like I was moving out of the field of communication studies where not much research with veteran happens and more into like the spaces where the research was really going on, which was primarily in psychology. So I opted for the job instead of the fellowship. And so I spent my last year in Denver working and helping to build this military psychology program, um, which I loved and it was super exciting. It got me way more plugged into the community. Um, I, I learned a lot. I got to help teach some of the courses. So basically that program is a program where they train future psychologists to work with military veteran populations. So I was helping to teach the students and influence their research. So it was all the things that I was really growing to love and my career was sort of taking off. So when it came time for the job market, 
I was weighing, you know, and all of my mentors from communication studies, most of them were like, yeah, you, you need to get a tenure line, you know, faculty position. They're, they're hard to get. Like, you're going to be qualified. We're confident. This is where you should, you know, the route you should take. So I applied for two faculty positions. And then through who I knew in the military psychology program, somebody sent me this random job call from the University of Illinois Veterans Center. And they were like, hey, they're looking for a research specialist at this Veterans Center in Illinois. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> that sounds a little bit more like the direction I'm wanting to go than if I went communication studies route, I would be kind of moving away from where all the veteran research was happening. So I applied for it and was called back pretty immediately and they were really excited and they flew me out for an interview and I it's in like the rural midwest so it's not in Chicago whenever I say Illinois most people are like oh you're in Chicago no I'm like three hours south of Chicago and like the cornfields it's very different and so you know when I came here from Denver actually my best friend from Denver is from this area so I remember calling her from the tiny little airport after my interview, full day of interview. I was on the phone with her and she's like, you know, I'm telling her how it goes. And she's just like, this is it. You're, yeah. you're moving, you're moving to Champaign. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. Like I, there's so many cornfields. There's nothing here. Like, I don't think I could live here. I don't think I would like it. I mean, everything about the position and the university was amazing, but I was just so like, mm. <laughs> like are you sure this is where I'm supposed to be going and so I was you know resistant to sort of those components of it but yeah I ended up she was right ended up taking the job and moved out here before I even finished my PhD program and started the work and then finished finished my dissertation while I was here and then had to like fly back to Denver to to wrap all that up before I got the degree but yeah so that's kind of how I ended up here and it's been a journey here as well. I've been here about three years now. Share again the name of the center you work at and what the support and services are that they offer. So it is the Chez Veterans Center. Primarily, we are a service center for military-connected students on campus. So we've got a huge 32,000-square-foot building on campus. Um, it's residential, too. So our top floor, we have rooms where veterans can live. Um, and we've got a second floor is like research offices. We've got a gym, a yoga room, different computer labs. And then our first floor, we've got a huge lounge, a fully equipped kitchen, conference room, classrooms, study spaces. Um, it's a huge, you know, it's the only building of its kind on a university campus, like a veteran center um, in the entire country. So it's really impressive. It was designed to be, um, a building that was really accommodating physical um, or visible disabilities and injuries. Um, but we we don't have that student population on campus. And so the mission has been revised to kind of align more with our student population on campus. My position was created in 2018 to basically stand up and create the research component of the Chess Veterans Center. And what does that look like? It was created because we had all these faculty on campus who really wanted to do research with veterans, but had no way or no knowledge of like how to access veterans, where are veterans at. So there's no major military installation near here. Um, so there's not a, a thriving large veteran community because it's a rural area. There's not very many active veteran service organizations like there would be in a big city. So basically that was the problem I was hired to solve. 
you know, we've got all these researchers that want to do veteran research, but nobody knows how to do it. Um, so I created a infrastructure for it. So it's called the Military Service Knowledge Collaborative. And essentially it's like a clearinghouse for military veteran research on campus. So I work with faculty across campus and all of these different disciplines, which can be challenging, <laughs> having to learn like research language and engineering or brain science is, you know, I'm like I'm communication studies, it's different. So there's been a huge learning curve, but it's been good. It's been really good in so many ways. So I work with all of these faculty in all these different areas and I work in the community. Um, I'm like a professional matchmaker for research is how I would describe it. So veteran service organizations, the Department of Veterans Affairs, the VAs, um, and the Department of Defense. So I will be, bring people together for partnerships. I help shape research ideas to make sure that they are really um, relevant to the military veteran community, making sure that they are going to be impactful to the community, making sure that the veteran voice is front and center in the development of all research projects. Which goes back to, you know, when I started doing this research in my PhD program, I didn't see myself represented in the research. And that was incredibly frustrating to me. And it felt incredibly exclusionary. I, I, I didn't feel like I belonged and that caused problems. And when I looked closer, when I had my research hat on and I looked closer at the research, it was because the people doing the research were asking the wrong questions and not even intentionally. It's because they weren't connected to the military community at all. So they didn't really know how to ask the right questions or what questions to ask. So I wanted to be able to influence the way researchers are doing research with veterans. And it's not realistic to think that, you know, all researchers are going to have some type of military background with less than 1% of people serve. So it's very rare to have somebody that has a research degree and a military background at the same time where the two are influencing each other. So I wanted to create an infrastructure that was going to help researchers that genuinely had good intentions and really wanted to engage with this community do so in a way that would be much more inclusive and just much more aligned and balanced with the actual on the ground needs of the community. So that's a lot of what I do. I'm like a veterans advocate. I gatekeep, you know, where veterans are at, make sure that researchers that want to come and do work aren't just going to come and try to like poke and prod and then get what they need and leave, but rather there's a reciprocal, meaningful relationship with the community. I just, I oversee military veteran research on campus and there are a lot of moving parts. It's constantly growing. I'm a one woman office. <laughs> so how do you encourage veterans who maybe feel like you or I did kind of on the fringe, not in these boxes, how do you encourage those veterans to step up and speak Speak about their experiences for this research. I have found that creating the platform is usually often all that's needed. Creating a platform for veterans to feel heard. I think we don't have the opportunity to tell our stories enough. Um, and when we don't, we're, we're only furthering really the military civilian divide when we're not talking with civilians, we're not sharing our experiences. A lot of civilians are good intended in terms of they, they want to understand and they want to know, but they don't have, they don't have cultural competency. They don't know how to ask the right questions. Their only information, if they don't have people in their family or serve themselves, their only information is coming from the media primarily. And the media, you know, as I'm sure you know, and all veterans know, is not an accurate reflection typically of what our service looks like. And so if civilians are really only, their only insight into the military comes from these movies, 
then it can be intimidating for them to know how to ask questions, know how to start the conversations. So when I, I do a lot of educating researchers around like, this is, these are the questions. This is how, these are cultural things that you need to know, you know, if you're going to talk with and interact with veterans in this way. So I prepare researchers in that way, kind of give them those tools, but then just providing the platforms for veterans once prompted, you know, what was your military service like, or why did you join, or, you know, why did you get out? Those questions, I have found just one question, a veteran can talk for like 30 or 40 minutes, which you, as I'm doing now, right, because you get an opportunity that we don't have very often to story our, and narrate our experiences, and when you provide those platforms, it seems to just kind of pour out in these really powerful and often very ther- therapeutic ways. What has uh, surprised you, the research team in talking to veterans? The first thing that comes to my mind right when you asked that was like, it's so much fun. You know, I, I think that a lot of the researchers that have really engaged this community have found a type of energy and a type of like cohesion among veterans that they don't tend to see in other like populations that they might study with. So I actually just gave a talk yesterday related to this on campus and researchers tend to focus on certain like disease population groups. So like, for example, traumatic brain injury, if I want to study brain injury, um, just in the general population, there's not going to be like a cultural balloon around sort of all people that have experienced traumatic brain injury. But if you take that injury in the context of the military, then there is a cultural balloon around it. There is sort of all of these things that bind these people together in a way that's embedded in like social structures and culture that's different than populations that are outside of the military. So I think researchers that once they get into those bubbles, start to realize like, wow, there's something really powerful about this group and this community. And all researchers sort of go in, I shouldn't say all, seeing it generalized, but most researchers go into their field with an intention of service. Like I want my research to make a difference in the world. I want it to change something, to fix something, to make the world better in some way. That impact can be so stark with military veteran communities. I think it can give back to researchers um, in a in a way that they don't always see with other populations they're doing work with. You mentioned you have a book coming out this summer, Rethinking Reintegration and Veteran Identity, A New Redemption. Share a bit about that. So it is all about how the ways in which we conceptualize reintegration and transition are causing more problems than fixing anything. So the ways that we're talking about reintegration, the ways we talk about veteran identity, the ways that like the master narratives influence how veterans experience the identity themselves. So I essentially have developed this theory around veteran identity. It's almost like there's like a triangle. Imagine like a visual triangle. It's a hierarchy, a hierarchy of veteran identity. We're all conditioned, everybody in the service, any type of branch is conditioned that the ultimate sacrifice in the military is loss of life, right? That's the, the ultimate, that is the gold star veteran, right? Is lost. And we have gold star families as like an actual term, right? For people that have lost their lives. Under that hierarchy, you know, we would have people with visible injuries, people where I can see war on your body would kind of be the next sort of tier of veteran identity. And all this is, is compounded by media. Um, you know, under that, we might have people with invisible injuries. 
all the while, and, and so forth, all the while too, we have to think about social identities in the military, especially within a historical context over time of who was allowed to be in the military, right? So of course, at the top of the triangle, we have the white, you know, hetero cisgendered male. And then anybody outside of that identity, um, th those, those demographic identities, so people of color, um, women, LGBTQ, transgender, you know, all of these other identities on the margins are going to further put somebody sort of down on that hierarchy or outside of that hierarchy. So the whole premise of the, the theory is that everybody who falls short of that ultimate sacrifice of loss of life, particularly in the context of that majority identity, is going to feel or carry some sort of guilt around, I didn't do enough, or I don't fit. You know, I'm not a real veteran because there's these other people that are much more veteran than I am because of their experiences. But I theorize that every single veteran, every single person with military service feels that to some degree, um, you know, because of the way it's constructed and the way the conditioning happens. So the book basically, you know, presents and goes through this, this theory and this idea and what it means and how we can shift the way that we're talking about transitions and reintegration, I actually advocate in the book to not use the word reintegration at all uh, because communication studies as sort of a linguist, um, words create realities and hold meaning. Um, so I'm advocating to not even use the word reintegration, but to use transitions, what it means, how talking about it differently will help us to conceptualize it and understand it differently. And generally how there's a big need for us to account for the social implications of military service as it relates to our experiences transitioning out. And then I wrap it all within the context of veteran suicide. So the veteran suicide epidemic, you know, there's so many researchers sitting around scratching their heads of like, why are all these veterans dying by suicide? What's going on? Nobody has a clear answer. You know, it's been a huge issue since the data was first revealed in 2011. It was an issue before then, but the government, nobody was tracking it until 2011. And so once the research community started to see and the, the, the DOD and the VA, like, oh my God, this is a huge thing. You know, there's this huge proliferation of all this research around trying to figure out what's going on. And still there's no clear answer and it's not gotten any better. It's actually gotten worse since 2011. But my book and, and my contributions are basically like, if we think about transition, I'm tying transition directly to suicides. If we think about transition in a different way, if we think about veteran identity in a different way, then that will help us to understand suicidality and what's driving these actions and these feelings in a different way. And that transition, the crucial point is the first six months after transition is what I've heard people talk about. Have you found that out as well? Yes and no. There isn't a defined amount of time when it comes to reintegration or transition. There's not a, a common denominator among like all definitions of this is the, the, the amount of time. Um, I think that's common that it, it really, I think the first six months are pivotal in that they are the like exploratory, like, who am I now? That's when most of the men will, you know, grow long beards and spend like, <laughs> I'm stereotyping, but spend like a month playing video games, you know, right when they get out, it's when we tend to get the tattoos. It's when we make big moves because our military service binds us to certain locations. So when we get out, we have this freedom to go anywhere we want. So we tend to make big 
life moves at that time. So in those first six months can be compounded by like all of these changes that are happening at once, which can heighten, you know, the way that we're feeling around transitions and support and belonging to these different structures. My um, kind of basic premise that I hold on to with veteran identity or how I would define veteran identity is we're constantly in limbo between two worlds. We will always have a foot in the military community, no matter how long we've been out because of the conditioning and the socializing that you go through. I mean, there are psychological and physiological things that happen in our bodies. When we go through all of that training, we're part of that institution. It changes who we are innately. And we will never be able to undo those changes. I like to think of it as like in the army, you know, army greens, like we all, we're all army green as kind of a common thing. And so in the book, I talk about like, you'll never be able to like fully wash the army green off. Like there will always be some army green. And so it's kind of standing between, I've got one foot, you know, still kind of in that military world and it always will be. And then one foot in the civilian world. And I think veteran identity is learning how to navigate that perpetual limbo space. In this transition, do you concentrate on veterans to education or veterans to standard civilian life or both populations? Yeah, yeah, definitely both. Um, There's a lot, the post 9-11 generation has all kinds of education benefits. So we see more of the post 9-11 generation utilize those benefits um, and go into higher education after, which is why across the country over the past 10 years or so, we've seen universities create you know, veteran centers, hire veteran service representatives on campus because there's been this influx of military connected students into university campuses over the past decade or so. Um, a lot are dependents or spouses that are using benefits. I, I would say it is a different transition. It's a different experience because when you're going into he- higher education, you already have a a sort of new mission, a new plan, a new trajectory that you're moving into versus um, veterans who maybe don't know yet what their next step is going to be when they separate can find themselves spending more time trying to figure that out versus sort of already knowing what they're going to do and sort of already having a plan. I think your earlier question was around transition and have just generally has that improved. I know that there has been a lot of improvement around like the organizational sort of systematic side. So because there's been this whole proliferation of research over the past 10 to 20 years around veteran health and veteran suicides and, you know, mental health, all this stuff, there's been a lot more service development. So the um, TAP program, the DOD Transition Assistance Program, has been revised, I think, just a year ago, actually. It was, it's improved. Um, The rise of veteran service organizations and communities, you mentioned that um, earlier, that's been significant. I mean, there's a lot Actually, Illinois is, has over 2,000 veteran service organizations just in the state. And so it's like that community presence, I think, has made a huge difference in that there's support available. Not all veterans will avail, avail themselves to it. You know, some get out and don't want anything to do with veteran identity and are just very resistant, um, which I think is a process and, and makes sense for a lot of people. Um, but for those that are seeking it, you can find support in the community now in a way that you would not have been able to 20 or even 10 years ago. As your research continues to evolve, where do you see or what do you envision that impact being? I could zoom really far out here and be like, world peace. (laughs) Like no more war, enough, enough. 
this for 20 years. Like, but I want veteran research to be with veterans, not on veterans. That's a good way to kind of sum it up. That's my motto for my research office. We research with veterans. We do not research on veterans. So there's a big difference in, you know, veterans being involved. Like this is a community that has a, a bubble around it in order to understand what they need. You have to get inside that bubble and you can't just go inside and poke and prod and leave. That's not going to work. You have to be part of the community and you have to integrate. And if that could be... That idea could be applied across research institutions, including the Department of Defense and the Department of Veterans Affairs. I mean, I, the difference it would make, I think, would just be profound. This sounds really bad, but it's it's true. There's like money bags hanging over the military veteran community when it comes to research. So there are billions of dollars from, you know, different government agencies, the DOD, VA, um, NIH, just different, different research institutes that have grant money, um, you know, to do research with veterans, which is, can incentivize a lot of researchers who would not be interested in veteran research to direct or pivot their research to include veterans because of access to so much research funding. Um, and so it's like a lot of times, you know, the intentions might not match the impact, but if we could teach those researchers who tend to be well-intended um, to do research with, not on veterans, I just think it would be, it would make such a difference in on the ground veterans, what we have access to in terms of like, what is the best way to treat PTSD or military sexual trauma? You know, what do we really need when we're separating from service when it comes to a real like transition assistance type of program and service? How do we set ourselves up for a civilian career when we leave? You know, what do we, what do we, how do we cope with the loss of community and the loss of structure that all of us feel when we separate? So these questions, you know, if research would be with veterans rather than on, I think would lead to a lot more effective programs and, and, you know, different types of therapies and things that we could, we could use to heal in the ways that we need to heal after service. Ooh, that is good with veterans, not on veterans. So do you now identify yourself as a veteran? Absolutely. Yep. I, I do. I own it. I'm proud of it. I correct people if they challenge me on it. If I leave, you know, the, the audience or listeners with anything, it's anybody that is feeling that way. You're not alone feeling that way. I think every veteran feels that way and, and has some sense of wanting to, to feel invisible because my service doesn't count and maybe didn't mean that much. It isn't as, as you know, celebratory or glorious as other people's service. So I, I, I don't deserve, you know, these services. I don't deserve to have this recognition. I don't deserve to call myself a veteran. That's all bullshit. You know, we all served. We all signed up, especially during an all-volunteer force. You know, we made that commitment. We were available and ready, you know, for whatever was asked of us or, or told of us to do. And we deserve not only the recognition and the embodiment of veteran identity, but we deserve access to all of the resources. That's right. Jenny, thank you so much for the research and advocacy work you do on behalf of veterans and veterans who don't feel seen. In wrapping up, uh, I end each episode with this question. If a young woman were to tell you today that she's thinking of joining the military, 
what would you say to her? Do your homework is what I would say. I would say why. I would ask why. I'm why and not, you know, what are your concrete definitive reasons why? And if you know that, then that's a great starting point. But I wish when I would have went in and I don't regret it. I, there's nothing I would change about my service and I would do it all over again if I had to. But I wish somebody would have given me like a handout of like women in the military are, you know, one in three experience military sexual harassment, like one in seven experience assault, like, you know, 20, 30% of post-911 veterans have PTSD, like 11% are home, like all of these statistics of, uh, I wouldn't understand why or how, you know, at that point, but I don't know. It's almost like, you know, there's all these things that are not kept secret by any means, but you don't know about, you don't know the susceptibility that if you join the service, you're going to be susceptible to all of these things in a way that civilians who don't join won't. However, there's parts of yourself that you will lose and you'll never get back. And there's things that you will gain that you wouldn't be able to gain in any other way if you didn't join. So there's so many, there's so many benefits. There's so much sort of positive. I like to focus on the positive psychology of military service, how it helped me grow. It created such an adaptability in me in a way that nothing else could have. I mean, it, it, I think sometimes about my life, what my life would have been like now if I never would have joined the military and you know, I, I can't imagine my script. I probably would have been hooked on opioids. I never would have got the degrees I would have gotten. I, you know, I, there's just the life I think I would have lived would have been very different if I wouldn't have had this institution to give me the things that it gave me. So for women, there's a lot of challenges. It's a whole different experience of being in the military than it is for men in the military. But do your homework and know know your why just know your why that's wonderful thank you so much for sharing your time with me today yeah thank you it's been great and thank you for listening if you're a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one contact the veterans crisis line at 800-273-8255 option one or visit veteranscrisisline.net confidential support is available 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year 